Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Uplifting Impact Podcast. I'm Deanna Singh. And I'm Justin Ponder, and we're with Uplifting Impact. And we are so excited to be hosting you today as we dive deeper into this journey to make the world more diverse, more equitable, and more inclusive. Today, we're very excited to be having a conversation back and forth and talking about shifting context. So Deanna, can you help us understand the context for shifting context? When we mention this, what contexts are we talking about, first of all? So this is probably the number one question that we are getting right now, which and it's not new, right? I think maybe the volume has gone up a little bit, It's but it's not a new thing. And the question really is, like, what do I do in the midst of all the things that are happening all around me? How do I actually deal with all of these changes? Like, what does one do to manage that? And I think that one of the things that we keep trying to remind people is that it's not new. (laughs) We've been here before, friends, right? Like we have always, those of us who have worked in this space have always been in a place where there are things happening around us. And when we're talking about shifting context, we really are talking about what is happening in the geopolitical world around us? Like how are newspapers impacting and Mm -hmm. the, the headlines impacting us? How are the questions that our colleagues are asking impacting us? Are the things that we're seeing in our workplace, right? Changes that might be happening. How are those things impacting us as we're thinking of these, of the context in which we do this work? And I like the way that you say that, that this resistance, reluctance, maybe misinformation or misunderstanding about diversity, equity, inclusion has been around for a very long time. I think the way that makes this particular context different is kind of the the back and forth, almost the whiplash, like, hey, we're entirely on board. We're very excited about it. And then within a few years, we're completely reversing. So I think how extreme and magnified opinion about it has been and how quickly that has shifted, I think is a surprise for some folks. And what do you think are some of the most- I think also the volume. I mean, I feel oh, yeah. like the volume is like yeah. so loud. I We don't even watch the news on a regular basis. What we like to do is read the news, right? So mm. Even in like that, right, reading the news, I just feel like there's so many headlines. And I don't know if it's because of the algorithm and what I do and, you know, the work that I'm in, the research that I do that I'm seeing it. But I'm like, wow, there's a lot of headlines as it relates to what's going on in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. I feel like the volume is just turned up, even even when you're reading, not (laughs) not even watching television or listening to the radio. And that's a great point, because I think perhaps one of the greatest difficulties of DEI for a very long time was no one paid attention at all. <laughs> like So now all of a sudden, like summer 2020, like, oh my goodness, there's attention. And then maybe a lot of support in many different organizations for a couple of years. Like, oh, that was very surprising and very new. Mm-hmm. And then to see so many of those things scaled back so quickly. And what do you feel are some of the primary motivating forces that are causing the greater volume, the greater response? and maybe some very passionate responses to this work. What are some of the causes or concrete things that you see? That's a great question. I mean, I think that there's a couple of things that are happening. I think it'd be unwise for us not to acknowledge the fact that we're in an election year. And during an election year, all topics, right, that people have decided are going to be part of the conversation are going to be elevated, right? And there's going to be more noise around them. This happens to be one of the topics that I think a lot of politicians are talking about, thinking about, uh, trying to get their constituents to buy into. And so for that reason, I think that's one of the things that's happening that's made the volume go up. 
I think another thing is some of the stuff that is, you know, happening. I think the Supreme Court, the recent Supreme Court case was a, a moment where people were shocked. Yeah. And by that, I mean, the students for fair admissions versus Harvard that effectively said affirmative action programs that considered in that particular situation, considered racial identity as part of admissions was unconstitutional. Yeah. And, you know, I think what's interesting is that in this space, if you really think about the sector, it is still relatively new. And so in this space, there's a lot of people who are trying to understand like what they can do, what they can't do. And so anything that happens feels really jarring, right? Like, wait, how does that impact us? We've never been here before. This is uncharted territory. So I think there's a little bit of that like discomfort with the fact that this is a space that for many organizations is a new space and they're still trying to figure out like what they can do or shouldn't do or what what is in alignment. And so that kind of ambiguity, right? Mm -hmm. And whenever you have that kind of ambiguity and then something happens, it shakes it up even more. And I think those two things, SFFA versus Harvard, And then the election year, presidential election year cycle that causes big cultural issues to take a front stage. Those are two very big things. But I think the third thing that kind of undergirds all of it is increasing diversity at all. We are lots of people who talk about like, so what should I do with my DEI program? And there's lots of articles. Is DEI going away? Is diversity going away? I I don't understand the question. (laughs) It's here. Already, we can see it. People come from different social backgrounds along the lines of race, sex, gender, sexual orientation, age, nationality, religion, disability, family care status, and military veteran status. Those things exist. Mm -hmm. And they are increasing. They are increasing in a world where, hey, in order, I've always been the head of generic industries, a very large company. We were always a big fish in a small pond. But now... There's all kinds of big fish and all kinds of <laughs> ponds getting smaller. And in order for me to remain viable, I have to all of a sudden engage with customers, business partners, employees from social backgrounds I've never had to consider before. And in the age of technology, where we can have remote workers working anywhere at any time, diversity is a reality and it will have to increasingly become more diverse. The question isn't, is DEI going away? It's what are organizations doing in order to embrace and adapt to an increasingly diversifying workforce, customer-based, and business partner pool than they've ever had to deal with before. So those are things that I think are driving the anxiety. If, hey, I'm dealing with a business world, my business does not look like it did for the past 20 years, or how I trained and expected it always would look, that's going to drive anxiety and amplifying SFA versus Harvard or the election cycle kind of cultural arguments about DI because the world is different than what a lot of people thought it was and it expected it to become. Yeah. I mean, we talk about this a lot, but I think there's this undergirding of fear. Yeah. Right. I mean, again, going into something that's unknown that I haven't experienced before and how do I manage that? How do I handle that? And how people respond to that and kind of what is considered a normal response to this. And one of the normal responses to fear doesn't even have to be in the DEI space, can be in anything, right? Is to retract. Yeah. Uh, one of the things is to try and go back to where your comfort level is. Mm-hmm. And to kind of insist that the change isn't happening or that the change is yeah, temporary denial. or the change is unnecessary. And we call that status quo bias, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> 
we've done a lot of work in this space. We've done a lot of work working with people who maybe aren't necessarily the leaders in their organizations, people who are often considered hourly employees, individual contributors, entry-level employees, who, when we have conversations about this, there gets to be a certain amount of sometimes anxiety and fear and backlash. This is a political agenda that does not align with my values. That's what we see a lot of times. However, when there's deeper conversation, I do find that core of anxiety. Yeah. Of if you think about the history, if we just take it along the lines of race, if you think about the history of racial segregation in the United States, its long going legacy is we keep people from knowing about each other. We keep people from knowing different experiences. And you can see a lot of things happening in the educational space about what can be taught and what should not be taught. Where we have a lot of people, I grew up thinking the world was this way. And I grew up in a place where everyone was like me. It was maybe smaller. It was maybe even rather homogeneous. So then all of a sudden to become maybe in your 40s and be told, hey, the whole world is changing. Here's a whole new yeah. set of values. One of the most difficult lessons that we talk about for people to wrap their head around is I don't have to know about all these things. I don't have to know about intercultural competence or intercultural humility or pluralism or perspective taking. I don't have to know about all those things because at the end of the day, I treat everybody with respect, which means I treat everyone the same, which means I treat everyone how I want to be treated. And what becomes very difficult to say, oh, well, what about treating people how they want to be treated? What does it mean to practice the skills, the empathy, the listening to adapt? And I think sometimes it can be very easy for people who have had a lifetime of doing that, whether in a rather diverse population or have training in this perspective or have cultural and ethnic backgrounds where you've already had to do it, it becomes easy to judge that as resistance. Whereas mm -hmm. in conversation and conversation, I hear a certain amount of anxiety. Like, I don't know if my background, my life where I grew up gave me the training that I might even want to have to adapt as much as all of a sudden the world is calling on me to do. And I'm so just going to make this real personal. Let's think of an environment where Deanna would be completely out of sorts. Yeah. There's many, right? But if all of a sudden, like my entire life, I was taught how to work in a big organization, in a big city, you know, with lots of people who are coming from different backgrounds. And then all of a sudden you put me in the opposite. You put me in a really small town with a couple hundred people. And I was doing something, you know, that was super manual. Like I was working on a farm or I was doing something like, like that just completely took me outside of everything that I've been trained on. And then all of a sudden it was like, Hey, Deanna, you should know like about how to harvest this, or you should know about how to plant this seed or you should, right. That would, that would induce a lot of anxiety in me because I'm the type of person who wants to do well. It wouldn't be coming from a place of like meanness or a, pla a menacing place. It'd be coming from a place of like, wow, I'm overwhelmed and I want to do this. Well, I like to do things well. And I don't even know where to start here. And there's an assumption that I already know these things, right? So it doesn't take a hard stretch for us to think about how unnerving that whole yeah. experience could be and having some empathy too. I'm like, wow, this is completely different than everything that what, you know, than, than what I've been taught. And I feel like that experience, right? And, and helping people bridge that experience, that's really what our job is. Like our job is to help find ways to allow for people to see like it's really it's okay, Deanna. 
Like, yeah, you're farming, but we're going to help you with seed. I'm going to show you how to do it. I'm going to, you know, help you find the ground that it's going to go on. And I'm going to be a safe place where you can ask questions about how you harvest or yeah. whatever. It, it might, I'm trying to, that's the end of my analogies with farming. <laughs> <laughs> but, like but you even, see what I'm yeah. saying? Like, it, it is like core to who we are as human beings. And so if we could just think about ourselves as being odd. Odd, 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 out, or like not, not comfortable, or like yeah. you right, and we kind of put ourselves in that situation. Then it's easy for us to see how other people who are already in that situation because of what we talk about are feeling. And I think you mentioned about having space, safe space to process these ideas. I think it's important to note that in the age of technology, and especially in the age of social media, it becomes very easy to think that we are reflecting when we are actually distorting. When the only conversations that many people are having about diversity of any kind, equity or inclusion, aren't about open-minded exploration and consideration of its benefits to everyone, it is already coming in with preconceived notions about a moral judgment of what the world is and how it should be. And so it's already an antagonistic space, and those messages are amplified where it becomes hard to reflect and see things as they are as much as interpret the world through my lens and how I want it to be. So I think that's important to note and to understand where people are coming from, the way it's been politicized as opposed to revealing the ways in which an inclusive culture benefits everyone. There's always people from different social groups for which the traditional ways of doing everything, one size fitting all, does not work. Doesn't work. And in the thought economy, the creative economy, where we need innovative ideas, which means we need people to feel comfortable and confident and psychologically safe enough to defy the status quo that is harming us all and limiting us all, that benefits everyone. But to very easily think about it as politicized as, oh, you're just making sure that we can't say these things, we can't do these things, and you're taking advantage and getting it to this group. So I think there's some challenges there and opportunities. Yeah. So Deanna, what do you see as some of the opportunities? I think the biggest opportunity is to really test out the things we're teaching. Yeah. Because if we're talking about being inclusive and we're talking about being able to understand people from different backgrounds, then I think in this shifting of social context, it is important for us to also be taking into consideration opinions, ideas, thoughts that are outside of our own and really modeling that behavior. So when I think about opportunities, I think the biggest one is just for us to test ourselves. Yeah. I do want to go back though, Justin, because we get carried away with this topic because we're very passionate. We're very passionate about it. Mm -hmm. But I want to go back to the three things that we mentioned. We talked about the case, we talked about politics, and then we talked about just the rise in diversity. And I think we talked a lot about that rise in diversity, but I want to go back and specifically talk about uh, the Harvard case, right? So the Harvard case came out and you and I have done a number of different things where we've talked about this. But I think one of the things that's important about the Harvard case is that in the dissenting opinion, so no, the major majority opinion. Um, excuse right? me, yeah, in the majority, majority opinion, opinion, yeah, right, in the majority opinion, the court said if there is, give me if I'm right wrong again here, but a distinct interest, right? Yeah. If an organization has a distinct interest, they can bring in things about people's identity. Yeah, now, so it basically said like race-based admissions were unconstitutional except for military universities and academies. So there was very explicit. It was kind of took a lot of legal scholars by surprise. Like, so not in any of these places, except for military universities and academies. And the explanation for it was they have a distinct interest. So we've talked about this in the past, about especially the instances of racial tension at Camp Lejeune during Vietnam conflict. 
And what they found there was a disproportionate number of the soldiers were black, especially active soldiers who were going into the worst of the battle while their leaders were white, caused racial tensions that caused all this violence. They said, hey, we need leadership and an organization to understand and reflect the communities we engage. So if you have black soldiers, we should have black leaders who can understand them. So even in the court's own majority opinion saying, yeah, it's unconstitutional and all these things, but not here because there's a distinct interest in making sure leadership and the organization make adjustments to reflect the communities that they either employ, serve, engage, sell to. You start to see the logic here. Yeah. I think it's important to remember that too, because, you know, again, headlines can only be certain limit. There's only so many words that you can fit into the headline space. And so sometimes the distinctions in those notes get lost, right? This idea that in some ways the court just made it clearer how organizations should be moving forward and and what they should be thinking about. Now, not to say that it wasn't disheartening. We have a lot of listeners and a lot of teammates and a lot of people that we support who are in the academic space and they are having to navigate new, completely new waters. But it's not to make these like broad assertions. Considering social identity in any way is illegal. Yeah. That's what we're hearing a lot. Like, no. Or DEI is unconstitutional. No. No. It even says in the majority opinion, unless distinct interests. Yeah. So I just think it's important for us to uh, to recognize that one of the things that we have to do and one of the things that you have to do when you're a leader in the space or you're a thought leader in the space is you have to actually get back to the facts and not get lost in all the hyperbole. Is mm. that the right word? Hyperbole? Yeah. Ooh, that's my big word of the day. <laughs> but you can't get lost in that, right? Because if you get lost in that with everybody else, then you're not actually leading. Then you're just following what's being put out there. And so the one thing I would encourage people to do is actually get to the core of the information. Like how many people are out there making comments about the case and haven't read it? Let's do that, friends, right? Let's make sure that we are helping support some of the actual content and that we're sharing information that allows for people to see where these these lines are. And I think that kind of goes really nicely into the political space because we're talking about what's happening in the political context. It, you think it's loud right now? It's about to get louder, right? As we And, and I, I know we have a lot of people who listen abroad too, but we are talking about the presidential election that's going to be happening here in America, in the United States. Uh, excuse me. So here in the United States, it's going to get louder and louder and louder. And I think it's important to remember that as it's getting louder, another part of our job. So one part of our job is to be, you know, the people who are bringing forward the facts and helping people understand the full story and all. The other part of it is going to be understanding what parts of the story actually get into our organization and what parts of the story are we bringing in with us? Because I do think that one of the things that I try to help people remember about, you know, social justice work and about diversity, equity, and inclusion work is that they overlap 100%. They definitely overlap. We could not do the work that we do in DEI without amazing social justice leaders and vice versa. But when you're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, what we're really focused on is how within our organization, within our culture, within the things that we have set as our parameters, so like our mission, our values, our right within those things that we have set, how are we making sure that we are living them in a way that everybody can thrive? And there's a huge point too is, and I mean, that this episode is called Shifting Context. It's always going to be shifting. Oh, what we know about culture and what we know, especially about the influence of technology and communication, it will probably be shifting faster than ever before and exponentially so. So in this time where there's going to be so much shifts around, you got to figure out what your core is. Yep. 
and stay close to that. And let me get real here really quick. One thing you're not going to see from Uplifting Impact, right, from Justin or I on the Uplifting Impact platform is you are not going to see us get involved in culture wars. I cannot tell you how many times somebody would be like, Hot take. What yeah. years you thought on this? And I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> Why don't you know? No didn't you didn't you see who that celebrity was when they wore those shoes? And I'm like, I'm, I feel that people feel very strongly about it, but that is not my skill set. I don't know. Yeah. You see, you hear Justin's script? And it's not just a script. It's the reality because we understand what our lane is. I I cannot comment on everything that shows up on somebody's social media post. I cannot comment on every person's quote that is out there. That is not helping or moving the space that we are in forward. And I like the way they said the space we are in. There are other spaces for and other personalities and skill sets and experiences for whom that is very important. And I like what you said, our lane, our lane is something different. And, you know, you and I get together and it's on a Saturday night and we're going to go see a show. And beforehand, we're going to go get some appetizers or whatever. Yeah, I, I could give you my opinion because that is the setting in which it's appropriate for me in the role that I play. Because, of course, I have opinions. I'm a human being, right? I have opinions on a lot of different things. But I understand where that line is for me. And I think that it's important because sometimes our roles as people who are supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion in our work is to help people find that line and remember where that line is. No, we don't have to comment on everything. Is this an area of expertise in which we have deep knowledge or that we can help move something in a different direction? If it is, yes, then we definitely need to show up in that way. If it's not, then we shouldn't. Right. I, I I went through this conversation with a leader recently and there was something happening in the geopolitical space. And I said, how many people at your organization could tell me on a map where this place was? How much interaction do you have with them? How much business do you do with this spot of the world? Do you have somebody on your team who has a historical understanding or, or aspects of, of what is going on or, or the context behind this? And the answers to all those questions were no. Right? No, we don't have any business there. No, we don't have anybody who has that expertise. No, we don't have any other connections to this area. No, we don't understand all the historical aspects of it. But the question to me was, well, do you think we should say something? No, I don't. Right? Because it's not a space. It would be like coming to me and saying, hey, Deanna, the Grammys were last night. And I really want you to comment on such and such's outfit or, or where they got it from. If I could remember the color, we were probably doing good, right? I, I don't I don't have that expertise. I don't know all the designers. I don't know the different kinds of cuts. I don't know when this was last worn or what era this is in. I have, I'm adding no value to the space. And so I think that one of the things we have to do is recognize, like, so you wouldn't expect Uplifting Impact to make a comment about the Grammys. I hope not. I hope we haven't ever given that intention that, that that's what we would do. And why not? Because that is not our space. Right. So, yes, is there a lot of chatter on online right now today about different things that I have? Yes, there is. But again, it does not have anything to do with the work that we are focused on. And so understanding and helping to navigate your organization through that is critically important. So we think about what's happening in in politics. Yes, you should be aware, you know, things are going to happen. People are going to ask questions. But I think you got to have something like Justin's a little script that says, yeah, I understand those things are happening. But here's, you know, what's happening inside of our organization. And I love this about being clear about who we are, what our lane is, and focusing on that. We have a lot of knowledge at our fingertips. We have a lot of things where we're invited to take a stance on so many things. 
And when we take so many stances on so many things, we're taking stances, everything, everywhere. And I don't know, we have to make sure in our eagerness to take stances on things that we're actually walking, <laughs> moving forward. It's, here's a stance, here's a stance, here's a stance. Mm-hmm. And I think for many organizations and perhaps listeners thinking about their own DEI strategy, something that I would humbly offer as a strategy that has provided peace to many and effectiveness to many is, again, in this time of shifting context, get to your core basics. Find your lane, find your identity. And one of the things is making sure that you are building on the values that are organic and already pre-existing to your organization. If a common resistance and rebuttal to DEI is that it is a political imposition, it is imposing one set of cultural values on another, think about what the organizational culture is. I don't know of many organizations that don't have some sort of core value along the lines of respect. We respect people. Okay, then build on that. Creating an inclusive culture is part of respect because respect means understanding differences, appreciating them, honoring them, and treating people how they would want to be treated. I take the respect that's already core to our culture and build on it. Or teamwork. That's one of the ones that is all over the place. Okay, then when working together and working in a team, I have to understand that people have different experiences, perspectives, backgrounds, work styles, and adjust accordingly. At its core, DEI is diversity is a reality of life. Human beings and organizations of all kinds will have to encounter change and difference. Part of that response is we have to adapt accordingly. And a key element of adapting so that we can do the best that we can do, whatever our organization's mission is, is build a culture of inclusion where those differences are allowed to breathe, to thrive, to be recognized, celebrated, and that we can adapt to them. There is nothing in all of natural reality and all of nature that I don't have to adapt. I don't know of a single species. There's this change happening. No, I'm going to stay the way I'm. Everything adapts and thrives. At its core, the most effective diversity, equity, inclusion programs are we understand change. We understand difference. We know we have to adapt. Let's create a space in which we can do that well to the benefit of all and to the organization and its mission. And I think that really goes to the the third thing, you know, we had mentioned earlier, which is this idea of diversity. It's happening. I don't know what, how to, what else to say. It's happening. It's happening right now in real time. And the more resistant we are, is resistance is not going to stop that. It, it, it can't stop that. We have created a world in which we are constantly becoming closer, getting to know each other better, having more access to one another. When you think about like, I don't know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, if I wanted to call my family in India, I had to yell into the phone. We had to like orchestrate for weeks, like when we were going to meet up because they had to go to some random place in the village in order for us to call them. Now, if I want to call right now, literally I could be on here right now and I could, I could send a message that would go right to them. You know what I mean? Or we could FaceTime even like, wow, that's real spicy. The world is changing. Change is inevitable and shifting context is inevitable it's going to constantly happen. And so it's not so much like, how do we stop it? That seems like it's a fool's errand, right? Because you can't stop it. How are we going to stop diversity? You can't. It's already happening. It's going to continue to happen. The better question is, how are we going to do it in a way that allows for us to get to our missions faster, more effectively, more fairly, right? How are we going to do that in a way that we can all be proud of when they write about us in history? So shifting context, yes. Guess what? 
always been happening. Not new. Doesn't make it easy. We also know that you have the skills and the tools that you need in order to be able to do it effectively. I think it's important always to remember with humility that if you have those tools and it seems easier for you, that is a privileged experience that not everyone has. Ooh, that's real talk. I mean, real talk, I'm a mixed kid. Dad's black, mom's white, first generation of constitutionally protected black-white intermarriages in the United States. I lived in a black community through an integration busing program, went to a white school. My entire life before I chose it predisposed me to be open to all these things I talked to you about. And you know, some of you out there listening like, oh, this dude's talking about adapting and accepting difference. And I understand with humility and grace, like part of a whole lot of things I never chose trained me for that. Right. And I have to exercise a certain amount of patience and compassion for folks responding probably the exact same way I would respond to the types of differences I'm proposing. It doesn't make the fears, the anxieties, right or wrong. I was an amateur moral philosopher for a while. <laughs> I no longer am. It is not my place to judge. It's my place to try and create a culture of inclusion where everyone can thrive, even the people who are maybe fearful and resistant of it. To create that culture of inclusion and doing it inclusively, even with people with worldviews that I don't agree with and I don't understand. It requires I take the time to understand and meet them where they are so everyone can thrive. So you could just think about this as like one of the most awesome ways to test out your skills and yes. to continue to grow them, right? As opposed to it being something that we're afraid of, right? Because we know when you add fear into the mix of it, you're not really moving in the way that you could. You're not moving at full capacity. And when y'all figure out how to do what we just talked about, yeah. please tell me yeah. and give me tips <laughs> on how to do it better because we're in it with you. It's difficult. It's hard. It's hard. But it is the most honoring and humbling purpose I've ever found in my life, other than being married to this wonderful person right here. He's so sweet. Thank you. <laughs> well, we're so glad that you tuned in to this week's episode of Uplifting Impact, our podcast. And we know that in order for us to do this work, like we've said many times in this episode, in order for us to do this work, we need to make sure that we have other people who are helping us uplift the impact. And in order to do so, please be sure to share this episode comment on it by going to our website at upliftingimpact.com or provide your thoughts directly to us through LinkedIn at Uplifting Impact, Justin Pun and Deanna Singh. Absolutely. And until next week, keep on uplifting the impact. Thanks, everyone. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.